Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. We welcome you to Bite Into It, uh, where we talk technology, the internet, games, uh, privacy, um, all kinds of interesting stuff uh, on a Wednesday night. Uh, excited to be back. I think it is uh, for this crew um, our, our first show for the year. Um, so um, do do be nice to us if we are a little bit rusty. We will get the hang of it at some point uh, tonight or this year. Um, tonight on the show, we do have Laura Summers. Um, have you had a good summer in technology? Has it been kind to you? Oh, look, I've been doing what everyone's been doing over the summer and playing Wordle obsessively. <laughs> and then um, recently mourning the purchase of Wordle by the New York Times and seeing it um, mm. poured across. In fact, I was saying off air, I was today was the first day I saw the website redirect on my phone and I was just a bit sad, like a little tear came out. <laughs> it's like, it's the end of an era. It was such a pure moment where everyone was just playing a game online because it was fun together. Yeah, and there, isn't there like a, a kind of like a Ninja Sudoku version as well, where you can like um, there's like four or five wordles together. I think there I saw a screenshot. There are so of that. many clones. I've been yeah. playing another one called Absurdal, which is an adversarial wordle. So the word changes under the hood every time you make a guess. It's like what words could I possibly make with the remaining letters? So it tries to make it as hard as possible. So it picks really weird words and like does a lot Oof. of letter duplication and stuff. But it's kind of like wordle whack-a-mole. It's like weirdly satisfying when you get it right. <laughs> also in the studio, we do have Mr. Dan Salmon. Dan, have uh, have you been? What's What's been news for you this summer? I've been good. I only discovered, well, I knew about Wordle a long time, but I'm, I'm definitely a late adopter for most things. So I only really got into it in the last couple of weeks. And I'm like, yeah, all right. I, I should have been doing this for a long time ago. Um, apart from that, I, I, I did a bit of switch off. I Yeah, I, I generally use the summer to kind of be outside and mm. not on the internet. Have you been fishing? I have been fishing. Um, I've, I've I've been a, a, a few times this summer. Not nothing, nothing major this year. Last last summer seems to have been the the, the big the big fish, but um yeah we'll we'll see how we go throughout the year. There's a few trips planned, so it should be a bit of fun. Nice, and I'll be with you also. I'm Warren Davies. Um, what have I been doing? I've been uh, caught up in the busy sidewalks of uh, scooters and so forth with uh, with my new push bike, um, which has been fun. But um, yeah. I, it's been good just to hit the books um, and just the, the very sort of lo-fi technology that's it's been around for a while. But um, yeah, looking forward to uh, talking you through some interesting tech this year. And we've got a, a pretty awesome show tonight. Excited to have a chat to some um, great guests from all around the world. Um, if you've been wondering what it's like to go viral in some way or another or, or break the internet, whether it's with your backside or with your startup or with you know whatever you uh, want to put out there into the world, um, we're going to find out what that's like uh, with our first guest tonight, uh, Olivia Yallop, who's just released uh, a new book, uh, Break the Internet. Um, so we'll find out what that's like and uh, what happened to Olivia for, for that to be her experience. And we're also going to have a chat to artist uh, Alice Mosley, uh, who has siphoned off the consciousness of various tech moguls, um, with or without their consent, um, into vessels as part of her new show. So we're going to find out what that's all about uh, a little bit later in the show. But before then, there is uh, all kinds of news that uh, we did want to bring to your attention. And uh, I was just telling uh, Laura and Dan that um, my Uber did get pulled over over summer uh, by some police because the, the driver was adjusting the sat-nav uh, on their phone. So technically, uh, we're breaking the law. But um, 
it could be part of the immense pressure that drivers are under. There is a, an open investigation um, into Uber um, in New South Wales at the moment, but it does have uh, ramifications for the service uh, around Australia and, and around the world as well. Um, so information's come out that uh, the service has been allowing drivers, which are, as you probably know, not employees of the company, but subcontractors, uh, to work at least 61 days in a row, um, also failed to remove cars that were deemed unsafe from its platform uh, through the things such as uh, UberX and, and sort of self-driven, self-owned cars um, and connect, uh, conducted inadequate insurance checks on vehicles, um, the state government audit has found. Um, so the report was um, delivered last year, um, which um, did get a few headlines around the world, but it is still open. Um, and uh, yeah, it also discovered um, failures to uh, act on sexual misconduct cases, driver misidentification, um, but the uh, audit is still open. And um, yeah, the regulator is uh, sort of tracking and checking into the, um, I guess, circumstances for the 32,000 drivers uh, around uh, Australia. Um, or in in the state and then um, around the country. So I don't know. I, I, I think um, my my gut feeling is from in in this case in point, you want to support the drivers. And um, for so many people, um, it's easy to say you know gig economy, like you know they should be better jobs. And of course they should be. But while they're not, they are jobs, and and people do rely on them. Um, so the best kinds of conditions are the sorts of things that we should be aiming for. And yeah, I, I can see the kind of the delicacies of sort of commercial um, arrangements here and the fact that it's not really up to Uber to maintain these cars and, you know, update their um, records when someone's identification changes. But it's also our contract is with the company, not so much with the drivers. So they yeah. do have a responsibility to, to riders that these things are being done properly. But yeah, yeah. What, what do you two think on this one? Well, I was thinking like, you know, Uber is like the king of king, master, I don't know, right mm. word, of automation, right? They've done so much work around making the user experience of, like, the customer and the company incredibly smooth. And I'm thinking, like, all this insurance stuff and, like, doing maintenance checks, that feels like a really good opportunity for automation. <laughs> <laughs> like, could we maybe give some thought to the driver experience? Could we put some time and attention into making it as easy as possible? Mm. And also to doing their own validation at the back end, because there absolutely are ways that you can automate that work. We do it all the time for things mm. like identity verification and authentication. So so, yeah, like it feels like they've they've done the classic like big tech platform thing of like only focusing on the B two C bit and not focusing on automating any of the back of house systems. Um, and also, like one of the other things in this piece that really caught my eye was that one driver who was like, "Oh yeah, I'll uh, renew my insurance," and then canceled it immediately, knowing like and then sort of bungled it and sent that cancellation <laughs> that got <laughs> swept up in the audit. And it's like you feel really bad for that person. Like they clearly were having a hard time financially and probably couldn't afford that that particular policy. Um, and then to like get caught out like that, that must really hurt. And and I think it speaks to your, your bigger point, Warren, that, that these platforms are not paying people enough and that the sort of cost benefit of like how much it costs to maintain your car is maybe not worth it for the amount you're able to earn. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I do think about those people who get a, get a new car off the salaries they make through Uber and they have to drive the Uber 61 days in a row to keep the new car. It's mm. this very vicious um, cycle. But I don't know. Is there is there a solution here? What, what would you do if you were running the, the company here, Dan? I, I think Laura's on the money. I think it's that there's got to be some consideration put to the driver experience because, you know, it, it, it's all very well and good to treat the cash cows that provide the money as well as possible. But, like... There, there's value in the work. There is so much value in the work that Uber drivers do that doesn't get rewarded, and we've seen this time and time again um, through all kinds of you know poor poor practices on behalf of not just Uber, a whole lot of gig economy or, um, organizations. Um, 
we yeah we, like make them employees mm. treat them as employees can we just mm. do that mm. yeah I, I think that's all I'm, yeah, yeah. I, I think that's that's that feels like the, the the end of the statement just like if they're working for you for that many hours a week they're employees it doesn't matter what the contract says absolutely like, just just Take it as given. Totally. They're employees. Dan, you've also been uh, keeping an eye on one of the other uh, big brothers out there um, and something's <laughs> going on in the, the EU, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So um, Google is uh, being sued by um, in, in the EU by a, a company called Pricerunner, which is a Swedish website that offers free-to-use price comparison services to online shoppers. Um, they're being sued for 2.1 billion euros. That's, 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 that's a lot of money. Um, basically... Uh, of the, the the standard catch cry, which is Google preferences their own search results over those of other organisations when it benefits Google financially. Um, now it's it it. it uh it probably won't be a difficult thing to prove. Google have already um, been uh, found to violate European antitrust laws by prioritising its own comparison shopping service, uh, Google Shopping, um, and then they they paid a two point four billion dollar fine. Oh, sorry, billion euro fine at the time. That was back in twenty seventeen. Uh, Google did appeal that uh, decision, but it was ter- but the appeal was denied last year. So. There's there's precedent for this. Um, I'm just imagining the diplomat from Boba Fett saying, "Ah, uh, if you'll allow me, I can see what may have happened here. You've been looking at the Google Google, not the you know everybody else's Google. Let me just reset that button for you." And I've not seen it. Boba Fett yet. You're looking right. at him. that's there's, a blank there's, face. There's I'm giving you. 50, Fifty people in Victoria right now who are nodding along. Going, yeah, I, I know exactly what you're you. You are the cool people. Warren and those fifty people. I'm proud of you. Um, look, it, it, it'll be an interesting it'll be an interesting case to see what happens here. Like Google have been under fire for antitrust, not just in the EU, but uh, the new US uh, legislation that the Biden administration has brought in is, is seeking to uh, clip those wings as well. But we'll we'll see what happens with this case, and I'm sure that'll be a very interesting thing uh, in the months going forward. Mm. Not to mention all the cookie stuff that's been happening. Google Google's been like. Uh, called out for for like their cookies and their their management of data being against gdpr or not uh, uh, the 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 um, general your, data protection. The general data protection. Yeah, GDPR, the EU one. Yeah, you yeah, got it right. I, I did. I, I had this moment of that was the wrong acronym, Laura, but no, no it was the right one. Yep. Yeah. So, so like this is like one of many kind of coming in on multiple fronts mm. for them, and I think it should be interesting to see if uh, any of these um, attempts to like stick a stick a wedge in their armor like succeed in cracking. Absolutely. Cracking it open. Yeah, and 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 the GDPR is that you know that case in point of the EU being like you know the test case for the rest of the world. It seems like when the EU makes a law, the um, because they've got such a massive population base, uh, companies just kind of conform to it and then the rest of the world says, all right, well, we'll make our laws the same. So we'll see what happens with this. Mm. Yeah. You're also looking at something in that part of the world. Or... Yeah, well, there's, uh, you know, talking of um, large platforms under fire, Twitter has bowed to pressure from German regulators and has started blocking accounts that have been uh, called out for you know, propagating porn, and I say this in like you know very serious bunny quotes because who knows exactly what they're what they're describing as porn. Um, and this is this is an interesting development because they've actually been reasonably good at not doing this thing of letting individual countries boss them around too much or tell them like what they, what they can or can't platform. Um, but in Germany right now, they have these age verification laws, which are saying like you must have some kind of, uh, you know, like um, age verification process, um, which is essentially a fig leaf anyway. In most cases, it's just a, are you 18? Yes. So you could argue that it, it, it's nothing more than like some kind of, you know, 
click click monster like to make some pearl clutchers feel better but i used to like how people would like pass around the answers to trivia questions when they used to ask like you know who is the quarterback for the yes you know Sam- i blah, remember blah, blah. this yeah, yeah to, the, the things that they used to ask to try and catch you up because you couldn't possibly know that if you weren't born at that era because there isn't a thing called google and we can't <laughs> find out any other way um but yeah, look, it's interesting. I think there's there's been about um, 60 accounts affected to date. Uh, they're just saying that these um, accounts are withheld and it's unclear if these are going to be permanent bans or going to be like, um, you know, ongoing and or whether there'll be any kind of recourse for the people who are those account holders. Um, there is a broader sort of... Uh, thrust that's happening in the what you might think of as the e-safety space, which is people um, getting head up about children seeing porn, children seeing porn through any kind of platform. Um, we're seeing similar things happening here in Australia. The UK has also been doing similar kinds of uh, legislative, legislative pushes to try and prevent this stuff from getting um, platformed. And there's a lot of academics and people in the space who are saying, essentially, you don't know what you're doing, and it's a much more complicated thing than just don't let people see porn. Um, obviously, like, there are potential harms of someone, especially someone very young, seeing something unexpected. But also there are lots of harms around the, uh, you know, the shame and the the kind of social like stigmas associated with porn. And I think a lot of people in the sex education space are saying actually a much better and more robust way of thinking about this is about sex education and talking about people about uh, about these issues, because literally all of these regulatory attempts still just boil down to whack-a-mole, right? Like there's never going to be a no porn internet, or at least mm-hmm. not, I imagine, in our lifetimes. Mm. Maybe in some mythical utopian future where our sexual urges are so well met that we don't need it. But I don't know, maybe that isn't even a future that is utopian. Maybe that's just really boring. Looking forward to the June sequel. You know, <laughs> right. maybe in, uh... Seriously, though. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yes, I think it's, I think it, you know, it's, it's certainly interesting to see this coming from Germany, which has traditionally been very progressive and is now like having a bit more of a um, populist government in place and doing some more conservative kinds of approaches to digital governance, which is, you know, frankly, really disappointing. But yes, look, we'll see. We'll see how it falls out. But yes, definitely uh, commiserations to folks who are seeing their accounts getting banned and hopefully it doesn't last for forever. Mm-hmm. Dan, you, you've been uh, on the sort of uh, anti-vax convoy um, trail. <laughs> no! Um, I, I notice your eyes are looking healthy and, and everything's okay there, so um, presumably you're unscathed. Yeah, yeah. No, look, it's um, it's it's been a wild ride. Look, um, for, the, for those who uh, have been following overseas politics, there is a, a bit of a anti-vaccination um, uh, movement in Canada, uh, which has been led by truck drivers. And th- not to talk too much about that actual thing, um, there is, uh, there's been a crowdfunding um, hack essentially uh, into people who have been donating to this uh, this convoy uh, cause. Now that it's raised about uh, eight million US dollars, um, and the hack uh, it managed to get hold of uh, people's individual names, email addresses, donation amounts, and postcodes with messages of support, which included. Um, hundreds of donations from uh, Australia. So people sending messages, fighting with you all the way from Australia, sending full support from our family here in Australia. The, the largest Australian donation um, was about $1,300. Um, in, in total, uh, there were about 33000 uh, US dollars um, in donations from Australia. So, you know, if we're talking about, you know, we're talking about hundreds of people who have been donated here. There was, uh, I was reading this, so the article um, that I've 
uh, seen here on the ABC, uh, the, the woman who was the highest donor in Australia who donated the $1,300 um, said she had family and friends who'd lost her jobs due to vaccine mandates, but then when she um, saw that her, that her uh, data had been ha- uh, hacked, she wanted her money back. I'm not sure exactly how her justification for that is, but, um, you know, good luck to you trying to get that back. Um, I don't think that's how those websites work. It's not how this website works, no. Yeah. So this this this, this particular um, uh, fundraiser was on on the Christian crowdfunding website, Give, Send, Go, which I'd never heard of before. It's, um, it's, it's not your Kickstarters or your, uh, or your GoFundMes. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, look, I mean, it's, again, just a, a, a warning that you've got to be careful where you put your data. Hey, there was uh, some sad news this week, uh, I think yesterday, that um, one of uh, Melbourne's best love venues is going to be uh, closing down um, due to the um, uncertainty around uh, density um, restrictions uh, at venues uh, in Melbourne. Uh, sadly, the curtain will be um, no more um, in a few months' time. I think uh, November they're going to uh, finish up. Um, so, yeah, we were just having a bit of a moment talking about uh, great gigs that we'd seen at uh, the Curtain. Um, Gold Class was one of mine. Um, uh, Blank Mass, I've seen a heap of good stuff there. But, yeah. Triple R. You're with Warren, Laura, and my name is Dan. And if you've ever wondered what it's like to go viral in some way and break the internet... Um, We've got someone who might be able to give you some advice on what that's like. Uh, Olivia Yallop has just released a new book on this topic. Um, Olivia is joining us from a very early morning in London. Olivia, thank you so much for making time to speak to us today. Thank you for having me. Excellent. All right, the sound works. <laughs> so I guess the, um, the, the, the first question is, Olivia, what happened? <laughs> what like why did I write the book? Well, what's, yeah, what's going on? Well, what's yeah, it? I guess you 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 became internet famous in in a certain way. <laughs> yeah, so I have a kind of both a personal and professional history with this topic. Um, so I, when I was young, growing up, I'm a millennial, um, growing up on the internet, um, growing up with the internet, which I think is something that's quite a, a unique and specific experience to the millennial generation. Um, I did actually accidentally become internet famous uh, back in the Tumblr days, if anyone was kicking around on Tumblr in kind of the late 2000s. Um, it was a really interesting kind of space to be part of. It really gave me a bit of a primer for what it's like to be part of an online community and in many ways a kind of um, uh, a kind of early exercise in like proto-influencing. Um, but also, um, I think in many ways, it's such a different context and such a different environment to today's kind of hyper-commercial, super, super mainstream um, influence the culture. And actually, interestingly enough, um, many of the people who I was kind of internet friends with um, have actually gone on from those early Tumblr days to become now really successful YouTubers, Instagram influencers, people with now millions of followers, very public profiles, and you know, merch lines and par- brand partnerships. And they're being flown around the world to, you know, go to parties on tropical islands for Revolve and things like that. So it's been a really interesting experience kind of thinking, if I hadn't given up my Tumblr, would I maybe have written this same book, but from a very, very different perspective <laughs> or maybe I wouldn't have written it at all so um yeah that's my kind of per- my personal relationship with uh with influencing it's interesting what you say about how it was a different kind of um uh place you know only sort of 10 15 years ago and it's not this kind of like glossy 
you know, Super Bowl version of, of sort of being famous. And I do have, I do actually have a Tumblr joke, which is, um, okay. uh, so C-Punk was, C-Punk was cool, but if you boil it, it just becomes steampunk, which was never cool, <laughs> uh, no matter which way you cut it. That's amazing. That's, do you know what, I think we're due a, a kind of C-Punk revival. So professionally, I should say the kind of professional side of my relationship with this is that I've worked in social media um, marketing for eight years. Um, and as part of that, my job is to kind of study trends and to analyze kind of cultural shifts and help help brands kind of, um, uh, I guess, to integrate those in, into their strategies. Um, and as a result of this, I spend a lot of time on TikTok. I spend a lot of time looking at youth culture and looking at kind of um, trend revivals. And there is such a, a kind of Gen Z hankering for those like nostalgic Tumblr days for kind of 2010 American apparel aesthetics. For And so I think we're kind of due with something called like indie sleaze is definitely on the rise. So I think we're definitely due a, um, a C-punk revival sometime soon. Um, I can't wait for kind of crunchy pizza gifts and like galaxy leggings and yeah, all those things to to come around again. I've still got those in my wardrobe. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, great. You're yeah. It's if you, if you keep things in your wardrobe long enough, it's all just going to come full circle. It's interesting actually. There's been a meme that's been um, kind of was quite popular last year that was saying you know any any time something happened on TikTok, a kind of like weird niche story would go viral. It would get attention in the press. Um, there would be this kind of response from slightly older, I guess, internet users saying, oh, this happened in Tumblr in 2013, or this happened in Tumblr in 2010, this happened in Tumblr in 2014. So there's really this feeling that the internet is so self-reflexive and we've kind of reached this like inflection point with um, with culture from the early days of Tumblr to TikTok now and many of the same issues are replicating and, and the same kind of trends replicating as well. It proves there's nothing, nothing new under the sun. It's all just recycled. And what was the response to the, the book is called Break the Internet and it's, it's sort of come out in the past few months. Um, what, what's been strange or um, expected for you uh, sort of going through that experience and I, I guess reliving sort of how it was for you uh, when that happened? For sure. So I think um, I was able, it, it was an interesting experience to look back on those kind of early um, early interactions with the internet through now a lens of a kind of more professional experience. Definitely, I, I hadn't kind of uh, lined up my uh, personal story with the evolution of the industry um, in such a kind of reflective way before. So my career, I think, is quite an interesting example of the the sort of like arc of, of the way the industry has shifted because I began my career in mainstream advertising, doing out of home, print, TV, all these kind of um, traditional forms of media. And then as that that kind of side of the business was beginning to kind of collapse and we were losing business, I moved to a much smaller digital and social agency. And that shift from kind of mainstream media to new, from you know radio to podcast, from, from TV to kind of blogs and digital media is really representative of the industry as a whole. So I found writing the book quite a an interesting experience because it, it enabled me to slot my very personal um, story into a kind of broader cultural arc, which was really interesting. And then, as I guess, as the books come out, um, I've been—I think the re- reaction has been good. Um, I've—I was most kind of uh, anxious, I guess, or almost um, attentive to the reaction from influencers and the creator community. I put that in heavy caveats because I think the word community is, has been slightly bastardized in in our kind of uh, <laughs> web two context um because no one has written really or very few people have written really at length about influences and influencer culture 
before. So I was aware of the kind of weight of responsibility um, around a quite contentious issue. And um, the, what the book is trying to argue is actually the, the, the kind of overwhelming narrative about people who make money online in this way is that they're kind of shallow, narcissistic, not worthy of kind of cultural analysis or like intellectual study. Um, and actually, I'm the, what the book is trying to do is kind of reframe them as um, a much more interesting uh, like lens to look at loads and loads of other issues, uh, kind of everything from like labor to politics to power to capitalism. So um, that kind of reframing, I wasn't sure how that was going to land. And actually, um, I think most people have 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 actually found it quite refreshing. Um, so yeah, I've, I've been really pleased with how it, with how it's come out. And also the other thing is the space moves so so quickly that every every week there's something new that comes up. I think oh god, I wish that had happened, and I could have worked it into the book. Or it feels like it's extending the arguments. But I guess that's that's a, a product of writing about the internet, and that is something which everyone who I guess you guys as well produce media about the internet. You're constantly on a back foot trying to keep up with um, with how fast everything is moving. Yeah, absolutely. As soon as you say something, you sort of think, "Oh shoot, that's out of date already." It's already already mm. old news. Um, I was absolutely. I was hanging out in the park a couple of days ago with a friend, and she was showing me a Chinese version of Instagram, which just is nothing but streaming influencers, and it blew mm. my mind. I was, and she was like, "Yeah, you watch it for five minutes, and then you bought ten products, and you don't even." So you've, you're probably familiar with the way Instagram has like all of these like you know purchasing sales links. Um, but I'm really fascinated by the way that these streaming influencers are like there's 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 no pretense that you know they're not selling you something it's kind of like very very like raw and and exposed like and 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 perhaps even that's part of the appeal that it's not it's not you know some actor and some fancy gucci ad being like oh look i'm wearing beautiful clothes but i just happen to wear beautiful clothes from gucci they're like you know mm. this is what i'm doing is i'm selling you nice lipstick just the honesty of it yeah. yeah and and it made me think about like you know the rawness you know like a lot of media comes up to say like oh you know we're going to respond to what's come before and people are attracted to the newness and the rawness of it and then eventually that becomes the mainstream and then it is rejected itself so that was a very long way to ask you how long do you think this will last or do you think we'll see like do, do you think this is fresh enough and new enough that it will continue in this sort of vein for some time or do you think that we're going to see the kind of current state of influencing like completely upended by something quite new and say another eight to twelve months it's a really good question. Um, it's interesting if you look at kind of mainstream media coverage of the influencer space, about every six months, someone writes an article saying, um, this is the end of influencer culture. Influencers are dead. It happened during the pandemic. It happened after Fire Festival. I mean, this is something that's been going for, for years and years and years. There's a, a real appetite for saying that, that influencer culture is in decline or that um, it's, it's not going to survive whatever latest scandal hits it i wonder why um, the media is, would say that <laughs> yeah. yeah i know it's, it's interesting it's i'm and also I, I should caveat this by saying that i'm slightly hesitant around the separation of like so-called monolithic mainstream media and digital media is the reality of course as as we all know is is way more fluid and fluctuating um but that is the way that often it's characterized on either side and there's this slightly or at least the relationship between influences in the mainstream media is painted on both sides to be fairly antagonistic so it's worth just caveating that up front I, I don't I'm not entirely on board with that uh, division um but yeah I so to answer your question about um whether you think like it's you're sp ask, specifically asking about live streaming within the influencer space I think that trend um in particular the way that um 
uh, influencer, macro influencer trends have worked so far is that things that are innovated in China generally spread out to the rest of the global population. So you see things happen there first and then um, down the line, those those actions or those uh, kind of um, trends are integrated into, into the rest of, of influence culture. So what I think we'll see is, yeah, a massive shift towards streaming live streaming in particular live shopping streaming which is what we're talking about um things on like weibo and wechat are super super popular um those live shopping events and you've already seen tiktok which is doing in china um heavily pushing both through the kind of platform functionality and through their own um attempts to work with creators on kind of programs to host live shopping events so there's a beauty influencer i've, I've followed and worked with for years and she's just started doing tiktok's official like live shopping program she's you know flogging mascara or whatever and i agree with you that i think there's something refreshing for the consumers to drop this illusion of kind of parasocial authenticity like i'm your friend and then you're going to buy what i'm shopping and actually there, there's something a bit more kind of um refreshing about the qvc element of it like here's just something good like buy it if you want um but um i don't think on the on the other on the other side i don't actually think that that anything is going to decline i think there's this idea that that um, you know, if something is going to get dropped or influence culture is, is going to decline or people are going to get bored of it or tired of it, there are always these statements that come out or um, kind of pieces of market research that say, you know, the majority of consumers don't trust influencers. And I have a real problem with that framing because uh, that's often used to drive arguments that influencers are kind of in decline or their power is waning. Um, I think if influencers, if consumers thought they were being influenced by influencers, then the influencers are not doing their jobs properly. I think for people to think that that they are not being influenced by them is is that's that's the the gold star the tick um so those surveys in which consumers are asked about their own preferences are, are kind of very problematic from a from a kind of um research design perspective because you should never ask people what, how what they think they're they're being because they, they don't have an, an objective view um but uh secondly just yeah i i i think that um influence in general um is really in its kind of nascent stages this is an industry that is still in the kind of wild west era although it's been kicking around since um in my book i kind of date the emergence of influence as we understand it today um as kind of starting from after the 2008 global financial crisis um for a majority of of conflicting reasons um but we are still, and even though that, that's, you know, a period of, of over a decade, we're still in very, very early stages of this. And I think almost to think of influencers as like an influencer marketing industry is a kind of false concept. As the industry matures and develops, we're starting to see that the characteristics of influence, the techniques of influence, the kind of strategies of influence are being integrated into broader range of industries and are starting to become expected of the average person, the average worker. So you have really interesting case studies like uh, Walmart in the US who have started a kind of official spotlight program, they call it, turning employees into TikTok influencers. That's starting with 500 test cases, but it's going to roll out to kind of all retail employees. In the UK, we have a brand called M&S, which is a big department store. Um, they've done the same thing. A group of employees went viral uh, posting like lip syncs on TikTok in one of the stores. And a source who works at M&S has now told me that that's become part of official MS policy and they're going to expect all employees to kind of participate in content creation. So we're seeing the, the kind of slow creep of the content economy to consume everyone who is in the labor market. And I think that's the way that the influencer economy will go as well. People won't see it as being like, oh, I'm a full-time streamer or I'm a full-time selfie taker. It's actually just something that you're expected to do as part of you know, I'm, I'm an influencer for my yeah. work. It's the new it's the new wearing the company uniform is it like is. producing the company TikTok. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. Olivia, I'm interested in this idea. Um, re- re- reading through the book, you've, you kind of you go to an influencer boot camp, and you were talking earlier about how people are kind of being, I suppose, nascent influencers being built up to, you know, do it. Is there a formula yet, or is it still very much kind of a, an accident when someone becomes an influencer? This is the golden question because it's on the kind of philosophy behind influencing is that anyone can make it. Anyone can be a star. That's, that's the sort of, um, the golden promise is that I could theoretically become a, you know, Mr. Beast or, uh, Logan Paul, God forbid. Um, so that is a really tantalizing promise. Um, but it is a kind of false promise. I, so to, to put myself as a bit of a test case is like, can anyone do it? Can anyone make it? I decided to try and become an influencer. And, you know, I, I'm a marketing professional. I work with influencers. I should be fairly au fait with, with how to make it. Um, and so thought, you know what, I'm, rather than theorizing about how easy or difficult it could be to turn the average, very unphotogenic and shy person like myself um, into a, a social media style, I thought I'm going to do this. I joined an influencer boot camp, which is a kind of professionalized program designed at Um, churning out a kind of uh, algorithm ready optimized people at the end of end of the course and the one I attended was actually very responsibly run by a company called Firetech who are a kind of um, tech education company um, for children which raised some eyebrows Um, so the attendees of my course I think were around ages eight to sort of 13 ish Um, and it was aimed at kind of turning them to YouTubers they all wanted to be gaming YouTubers I was like okay you can you can take that I'm definitely not going to become a Twitch streamer anytime soon um, and through, through doing that, doing that course and also, um, actually starting to create content myself, starting to vlog, um, what became kind of apparent is actually just how stacked a system it is. We only ever really hear about the top kind of 1%, but there are the majority of influencers are never going to make it to those kind of those massive heights. They're never going to make tons of money. Um, there are crazy studies about, um, the average income of, uh, of people who are attempting to become you. YouTubers. So in 2018, there was some research that found that something like 97%, just under 97% of all aspiring YouTubers don't make enough money off advertising to actually break the US poverty line. So there's a real kind of disparity in who actually gets to make it. And then also there are the kind of cultural factors of like just how much time, money, resources you t- you need to, to make it to the top. Um, and then also the kind of technological and cultural biases that are built into the system. So um, the technological factors are things like um, algorithmic oppression, um, content moderation policies that disproportionately impact creators of color um, and mean that there are much more kind of white male creators who are in the top 10 than, than, um, than people from, um, from ethnic minorities, for example. Um, and then there are also kind of cultural factors. There's a bit of an imbalance in terms of um, who is represented within the influence marketing industry, who gets those sponsorship opportunities, who gets those jobs. Um, and some other really interesting research um, from uh, Clear um, reported in 2019 that female influencers get paid about a third less than male influencers. Um, and similar research by another digital agency called Magnetic North found that white influencers received uh, about 60-ish percent of uh, sponsorship, sponsorship opportunities. So there's some real kind of um, along the way, even though theoretically the road to anyone becoming a star is like open, anyone can upload content, anyone can can have a go. Um, and the industry works very hard to make it seem as if anyone can truly make it. Um, in reality, there are many barriers, social, cultural, economic, technological, political, that get in the way of anyone setting out to come and be a star. And then, of course, there's, there's also some luck as well. I think we shouldn't, um, we shouldn't kind of underestimate mm. the, the, 
the kind of viral one hit wonder and the, the element of luck that's, in, that's contained in that. You just need to be in the right spot to get hit by a fish in the face to make a fish slap <laughs> remix and, and then you're yeah, off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love you coming through with the with the TBTs. The, I love, yeah, the internet throwbacks. It's great. <laughs> um, so, I mean, it sounds like uh, access was not really the issue here. Like it, it, it wasn't that there just weren't enough lots uh, or stages on the Warner Brothers lot for, to make us all a star. Like there is actually something to being having a very specific talent um, or to have something that's culturally relevant. It's not just a matter of we just needed to turn more cameras on or, or what have you. But um, that's awesome. It's, it's great to get a, a perspective on that. And, um, yeah, we have had some chats with sort of um, specific areas. We, we, we spoke about um, uh, sort of uh, financial influences in, in Australia, which are a big thing here. We've kind of got a big sort of fintech scene and, and what have you. But, yeah, great to get a broader perspective. And um, if any of us do go uh, yeah, viral um, in the next few months, we'll make sure you get a chance to include a chapter uh, on Bite Into It and um, we'll be ready for the <laughs> version version two. But um, thanks, for, thanks for joining us on the show tonight, Olivia. Thanks for having me. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. We're very excited because uh, The Work Is Not The Work is a new solo exhibition uh, showcasing a series of new ceramic vessels by emerging Adelaide-based artist Alice Mosley. And... Alice has found a way to, uh, I guess, claim the consciousness of uh, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, and a, a variety of other uh, uh, tech uh, tech gents. Um, so we're keen to know how that works. Uh, Alice, thanks for making time to join us on the show tonight. Good pleasure. Good evening. Um, so uh, we'd love to know sort of what, what was the genesis for this idea? What, what made you think, you know, let's just throw these people in a, in a, uh, a vessel and, and see what happens? Yeah, sure. Look, well, you know, at the time I was really exploring the uh, mind-body problem. That being is the is the uh, mind in the brain or of the brain, and um, parallel to that, I was also uh, interested in the uh, art canon about extending what is uh, or what can be um, the limits of what an artwork is. So. The uh, the idea really um, about pushing an artwork into the realm of the immaterial but into um, the realm of consciousness uh, uh, led me to really think about the nature of consciousness, what it is, and then, of course, starting to think about those whose stock and trade is the commodification of our minds or consciousness. Look, this really is a sort of cheeky gesture, gesture using art to... Uh, reach across and commodify uh, the commodifiers. <laughs> do, do, do you think it can be quantified? I mean, obviously, this is the, the kind of navel-gazing kind of element to it. Um, how do you put a barrier around a consciousness and say, you know, I've managed to capture Jeff or Elon or Mark uh, in here? How did you start with that? It fits. You know? Yeah, sure. Well, really through the art canon and probably beginning back with uh, Marcel Duchamp, who um, first emerged with the work and many familiar with uh, being the urinal um, mm. called Fountain. And that sort of opened the door to conceptual art and in a way uh, uh, made it possible for the artist to declare what is art and what isn't art. And so it gives you know, the artist the ability to point or to make a statement about uh, what is in fact art. So whether uh, whether I can 
you know, by any other definition, say that their consciousness is my art, is, is a great question, um, and even what is consciousness. But uh, through the art canon, um, I'm confident that I, I can do this. Um, look, it's been there's been many questions around it, certainly legal questions about whether I can do that, particularly pertaining to whether the consciousness is a physical thing or is it an immaterial thing. If it's physical, is it in fact the brain, then perhaps I'm stepping into the grounds of slaving by claiming another person's, you know, essential body as my art. But I think, and well, I think, but definitely there is such an enormous uh, gap between understanding what consciousness is and whether it's physical or not, um, that I can slip into that gap and, uh, and make this claim. I'm curious about the technique that you um, that you're working on that that was described as part of these vessels, the sort of like um, petals, I guess, uh, that are they're encasing the vessels, and like how is that reflecting uh, these ideas that you're playing with, like the the big data and the embodiment of consciousness and um, the sort of nature of, of our digital selves and our digital shadows. Like um, how how does the the physical embodiment of these um, these vessels like reflect the ideas that you're playing with? Yeah, and the answer in short is not at all. Um, so the vessels themselves are probably best looked at um, as an anchor for the viewer to consider the immaterial work. So maybe they function much like a church or a temple is a material or a physical place for the consideration um, of immaterial uh, uh, matters. That's what the vessels are. It's very difficult to exhibit uh, nothing. Uh, or a consciousness, um, and the vessels themselves. You know, there's we you know, artists like to leave lots of space for the viewer to make those connections without um, forcing them, you know, down their throats. But um, in a way, I suppose, you know, it sounds quite trite to say, you know, this person's consciousness is my art, um, and it's a you know quick and easy thing to do. But really, the vessels are enormously laborious, and in the you know sort of months of 10-hour days constructing them, my, my consideration is of the consciousness of those people. And so there is, there is a connection there, but uh, the, the vessels are not the work. Um, they're just simply there in support of the work. Did you, um, ha- how did you kind of connect with the, the subjects um, for, for the vessels um, during that time? Were you like listening to interviews or were you just kind of you know, abstractly thinking about them and sort of... Yeah, no, absolutely. Obviously, listening to interviews, trying to understand them, you know, trying to understand what their companies, you know, do and and how and how they are, you know, commodifying and understanding, you know, the nature of that and what effect it has on our society, um, and uh, you know, some of the obvious, you know, threats that that it brings about and some of the positives that it does. I, I. I understand you've had um, a reset Australia in um, and uh, and explored some of those things. So there are, um, you know, there's deep consideration that goes into not only those individuals and whether I can can I can actually you know do this um, to them or to others, uh, but actually you know what they do and what that effect is on society or, or how we in fact engage with what they do and then how, how that has an effect on our society. I can I can only imagine Jeff Bezos's consciousness fitting quite nicely into like a little mobile phone cover that clips onto the belt. Like he's a, he strikes me as a very practical kind of Walmarty yeah. kind of guy. But um, well, many many would say that our mobile phones are in fact an extension of our minds and consciousness, mm-hmm. uh, doing a lot of those functions. So I can I can see that. 
Could you tell us a little bit about what what the vessels are, are like and and sort of the yeah what you did create? Yeah, sure. I mean, the, the physical objects themselves are um, uh, medium to large scale, I suppose, for ceramic um, uh, vessels about eight hundred. Um, mills high and about 600 by 600 wide. Uh, the the pedals, uh, I suppose, or fins, or however you like to describe them, are, um, are made by painting onto a plaster bat with ceramic um, uh, liquid clay, uh, layer upon layer upon layer until they're thick enough um, to be able to be peeled off and then applied to the surfaces of the vessel. So they give the appearance of um, being very, very light and perhaps even some people say they give the appearance of not being ceramic material, uh, which I really like. Um, they're unable to be touched. Uh, well, they can be touched, but they're unable to be moved around by providing um, external pressure like you would lift anything normally because um, they're incredibly sharp and, and reasonably fragile. So they have to... Um, be uh, lifted using a contraption um, in suspension. Hmm. And I'm, I'm interested to know, um, has there been any kind of reach out from in, in terms of um, the law or, or kind of people sort of putting pressure on, on you in terms of like what you're able to, to claim or present um, in this or...? Are you happy to uh, no, share so, anything like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Look, you know, during the sort of development of the concept, um, immediately there's lots of issues that come um, to hand about whether this can be done, and so I needed to really um, spend some time. I did with uh, Professor Margaret Davies, who's at um, Flinders University. She's written a very um, uh, seminal book called Arpers Property, and um, she's a great resource. And really, I was able to establish that um, in Australia, at least, uh, there's nothing legally preventing me. It falls between sort of holes in the law um, that I can do this. Um, some people have been concerned about, you know, uh, uh, identity law or, you know, persona law. Um, but that's not the case in Australia. And in any case, I would argue that um, your consciousness is not something that um, is developed through labour but is actually innate. Uh, but I also had consultations with uh, Arts Law Australia and even, and of course, Lyndon even um, made, had their own um, due process around that. Um, essentially, it's untested, um, but uh, according to all... Uh, uh, you know, legal opinion, um, totally doable, and, and, and I'm not going to get in trouble, which was obviously important to me. Um, philosophically, I spent a lot of time uh, talking to the philosophy department, also at um, Flinders University and some um, people internationally, uh, to try and understand whether, you know, it is possible in, I suppose, in aesthetics and the theory of aesthetics for this to be an, an artwork. Um, and, you know, again, it's... I came back with answers that it was it was possible, um, but it's quite a mouthful to explain to people, so I can um, see why it's not regularly done. Um, I'm curious. Um, this whole this whole concept feels um, feels like you're, as you say, you're talking about the commodification of human consciousness and human identity. Um, I'm I'm just curious. Was there an element of revenge here? Like Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, these are arguably some of the sharkiest entrepreneurs of the, in on the planet, who you know put some some pretty horrific working conditions, for instance, um, around huge huge swathes of workers. Like, is there is there an element of Schadenfreude or of revenge or any other kind of you know kind of uh, aggressiveness towards these characters and the reason that you chose them? Well, you know. Uh 
putting it like that, I suppose that there, there ought to be. But that isn't really how I um, how I approach this. It's not necessarily my place, but I'm certainly aware of all of those things. And um, you know, these are considerations for tech right across. Um, you know. Apple include, but um, that necessary. I wasn't necessarily coming from that place. I was really coming from the from the place of uh, perhaps suggesting to people to consider what is happening when you're engaging with these products and and what in fact you are, um, uh, you know, giving up or what impact what you're doing is having on the society around you. On you know, uh, I guess probably in some ways is a threat to democracy. There's a you know, um, a definite, these guys are definitely agents in moving towards the, you know, what the French philosopher Jules Deleuze called the society of control where, you know, a network of surveillance, uh, uh, you know, would, uh, um, you know, track, track us and, and we would either fall one side of acceptable or not acceptable according to that. So th- that's sort of the approach that I came at. You Alice, know, what, what, we, what we might have to do is actually come down to the gallery and, uh, and check this out and continue this conversation. We are um, unfortunately going to have to wrap up soon, but um, we're going to tweet out a link um, to, to um, the show, and it's awesome. Um, what a great idea, and we're, we're keen to go check it out. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts.